You are listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with Rob Reed and Josh Galicki, bringing together the love of nature and photography. Episode 12. We discuss underwater photography with a special guest. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with me, Rob Reed, and my co-host, Josh Galicki. Hey, Josh, how's it going? Hey, good, Rob. Great to be chatting again. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually got to meet up, didn't we? Not, you know, a few weeks ago on your way back from Shetland. So yeah, we, we, we made it happen. The day of yeah, Wimbledon, I think Wimbledon was going on at that time. It was. Traffic yeah, it was, in, but yeah, yeah. Bit, bit of traffic. No, so I, I, I managed to get down to Heathrow. And uh, yeah, we had a couple of hours and lunch, um, you know, with, with Kurum as well, Kurum Khan, uh, on your way back through and your way back to, uh, to the States. So, so that was, that was, that was good, to, good to finally meet up. Yeah, totally agree. And the way back was actually a lot easier than the way in. Uh, we had a turnaround in Shetland. It was a two and a half day journey, a bit Frodo Baggins, but uh, on the way back, it was a lot easier. Yeah, because you know you were in Shetland a couple of weeks after me, so this is the first. This is the first time you know we've recorded a podcast since we've both got back. Yeah. So yeah, we, we've got a lot of photos to go through, Rob. I suspect. Both yeah. Of us, but it was. And we've uh, got a, we, yeah, we've got a lot of chatting to do about that place, which we're going to do another episode actually. Um, specifically on Shetland, um, and we'll get Rebecca Nason involved with that because obviously you know she runs uh, with her partner uh, Phil. They run um, the NOS boat, so they they do um, wildlife trips out to uh, to NOS and all those fantastic seabird colonies, which uh, you and I both did when we were out there. So, uh, and and talking of Shetland, our guest today is no stranger to Shetland, and he's just come back from Shetland too. So I'm delighted to, today that we're joined by uh, Henley Spears, and we're going to be talking about underwater photography, which I have to confess I know very, very little about, and I think you're the same, Josh. So <laughs> this, know, yeah. this is going to be a really interesting conversation, so I'm really glad uh, that, uh, that Henley's here. So Henley, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Rob, Josh. Thanks for uh, having me along to talk Shetland, right. maybe, and certainly underwater. Well, I'm sure I'm sure we'll, uh, you know, Shetland will be part of the conversation at some point. Uh, Henley, why don't you tell people uh, out there a little bit about yourself uh, and, you know, perhaps how you got into photography and, you know, how you make a living and all that. So they, they get a bit more of a, you know, a bit more of background on you. OK, I'll uh, try to aim for the medium version of that story. Um, <laughs> my I, I got into photography really late. So my my path is far more to do with the ocean and, and sort of the underwater world than photography for a long time. And even actually, it didn't really involve much of that. So I was lucky in that my, I think really thanks to my parents, I started snorkeling probably when I was about six years old or so. I didn't, I didn't grow up by the sea or anything like that. But I did start snorkeling young. And then I started, I did my first scuba dive when I was 12 years old. But I don't want to give the impression that I really had a sense of, of where I was going. And it was probably not me pushing for those things. It was probably my parents pushing me to do it. And I only belatedly appreciated all of that. And I really enjoyed snorkeling. I recall my first scuba dives and first few years of scuba diving being a little bit frustrating, I think, because I... I had trouble equalizing because I wasn't, you know, I was an air hog. I'd sort of suck up my tank very fast. And, and I was, you know, I was, a, I was you know, a, a young 
boy and uh, used to being competitive about things. And if you're going to be competitive about anything in scuba diving, people tend to be competitive about their air consumption, which almost invariably uh, males win, which is quite a funny thing to always see in a sort of um, the, the calm female diver almost always beats the uh, adrenaline filled male diver. And so I sort of I, I definitely enjoyed it, but it was one of many things that I liked. And I never thought about the ocean or nature or wildlife as a potential career. And I went down a very conventional path. I finished up school, did fairly well. I went to university where I studied history, which um, no, I wasn't trying to be a historian, but the idea in the UK is uh, that you don't really have to do something which is gonna bring you to a definite endpoint unless you wanna be a doctor or a lawyer. So my, my idea in doing a history degree was that I was going to follow my dad's rough footsteps into the business world, go and work in London and, you know, have a briefcase or, or things like that. So I continued down that path and I entered the corporate world after university. I became a marketing consultant. And what does that mean? Well, uh, my company had the rights to the club card data. And what we would do is, is not very fluffy marketing. We would actually interpret that data and then um, deliver the results to whoever our clients may be. So I started out working uh, with Nestle as my client, and then I ended up as the category lead consultant to Tesco for the bakery, dairy, and counters categories, which um, on a practical level, that meant I would go into their headquarters and, and talk to the team about, well, you know, sort of what promotions were working and, and what cheese should be in this store and, and what, you know, cheese should be next to this cheese and, and things like that. This, so, this is a far cry from underwater photography. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's my point. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, you know, a completely different life. And um, I suppose the relic of it is that I still today have a habit of lingering in supermarkets a bit too long because I still retain a little bit of an interest. But for sure, it wasn't my passion. You know, it's, I think you can make things interesting because, you know, that's your nature. But I, it wasn't what sort of, you know, like drove me down to my core. And the problem was that I was not very happy and I was very stressed. And I, alongside this, during my holidays, I was often scuba diving and taking more and more enjoyment out of being underwater, just the sense of calm and, and wonder and exploration at that underwater world. And I made a, a promise to myself to take a year out, which is quite common in the UK for people to take a year out, maybe sort of before they go to university or, or things like that. And so I drove myself to a, a second promotion at my company, which made me the youngest at my grade. And, and, and on the face of it, everything was really rosy. I was on the fast track to, you know, whatever great things were in store in the corporate world. And two weeks later, I handed in my notice, much to their consternation. And they were, I mean, I was, I was pretty naive about it all, but they were, they were very good about it in terms of they say, okay, hang on, Henley, 
why don't you just take a sabbatical for a year and then come back to us once you've you know sowed your wild oats and, and realized that you know the real world is waiting for you and when i made that decision the big thing which i was determined to do was to change my life and to go and be a dive professional on a tropical island i thought to myself that is the way to go and so i did it i went to the philippines and i became a dive master and i had a complete change of life i went from a, a sort of a very material existence in london with you know many nice things and places and and you know things like that to one where i i just had a a bed and a fan and a, a toilet outside which sometimes works but the key <laughs> thing was that i would i would wake up really early every morning and i would dive right into the night learning how to be a dive professional and and taking people out diving and i had never felt more myself and i never felt happier and uh, that was really the uh, the start of the end as far as my corporate career mm. and i but it was still really a tussle actually at that time it seems obvious now but in the months following my dive master apprenticeship i really wrestled with what to do whether to continue down this path which seemingly was making me so fulfilled or whether to you know go back to all the things which i built and and you know and i think conventional thinking was you'd be crazy not to go back, you know? Um, like, what are you gonna, how are you gonna fulfill your ambitions and then sort of make a life as a dive pro, like a dive bum, basically. And um, it, was, it was tricky to decide that, but I met a chap called Roger Moore, not Bond, another one who is a- <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, didn't know he dived. <laughs> did he have a golden gun with him, right? Was it? <laughs> Uh, I, think that, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> what, did he? Did he have that? What? What was it? What was the car that he had underwater? Did he beat him that way? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a Lotus. Wasn't well, a it? Lotus. A Lotus. It was a Lotus. Yeah. A Lotus. Was it a Lotus Elise or something? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. show my age. That here. would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Um, Sorry, I, I, I I'm interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, and anyway, this uh, this Roger Moore was an intuitive therapist. And what he does is quite strange. And, and I can't say that this is the kind of thing I go in for all the time. But at that moment, it was pretty good because you meet Roger and you talk to him and he's sketching on a pad without looking at it. And then he gives you this really funky massage, which is actually really painful. And you end up like retching and spitting. And it's kind of it's like it's, it's a real, you know, quite weird stuff, really. Mm. But the good thing was that all of that came at the right time because Roger helped me to see that there were many possible paths which, <coughs> which, which would be fruitful, but there was one which I was probably more, more close to my essence, my spirit, I suppose. And that allowed me to reflect and make the decision <coughs> of what to do based on my heart and my gut rather than my head. And, and I, I still say today that if I have any wisdom to impart to my daughters, that would be the only thing I'd say is when it comes to the big decisions in life, what you're going to do, who you're going to spend it with, I believe that you should make that decision with your heart and your gut. 
don't try to be too rational about it. And yeah, um, so I went for it, resigned, and went on to become a dive instructor uh, working in Indonesia, in St. Lucia. <coughs> and that was great. Um, but the issue is that when you start to work in your passion, um, you can lose the passion. And that was the part which scared me and which I could see other friends, colleagues, professionals struggling with is that they, because actually usually what happens when you work in these kind of industries, as you know, you guys will know, is that, you know, that, that there's, a, there's a beautiful aspect to it, but there is also a reality in terms of this kind of the, the work which must go in and the sort of the grit in the grind that you don't see behind the supposed glamour. Yeah, and, and the same can yeah. happen in photography. You know, and if you're talking purely about photography, then, you know, it's great as a, um, you know, as a pastime, as a way to take yourself away from that, perhaps sort of that work environment. But when you start to rely on it for an income, it does change things slightly. And I get exactly what you're saying about, you know, does that then dilute the passion and take it, take it away? Because it's no, you know, that, that thing is, is no longer that release it then the, the pressure starts to build on you performing in that area because you have to you know you have to pay the bills somehow so yeah. I, I, I get it entirely to make a decision though to follow your passion is incredible and i think that's such an incredible story henley i mean i know so many people that they go down a career of something they don't mind or maybe they don't even like. And the anticipation is when I retire in 30 some years or 40 years, you know, at that point in time, I'll do what I want to do. Um, and that's in my opinion, the wrong way to go. And you know, what yeah, you I, did and the decision you made, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. I did it myself. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I did something for 20, 25 years that I, I learned to hate actually. Um, the, the problem was I was very good at it. Uh, and yep. that, you know, and then you get, you, you go down a path, you get, you're good at something, you don't necessarily enjoy it. But of course, you get to a certain point where if you're in your early 20s, it doesn't really matter because you don't have too many responsibilities. But when you find yourself, you know, another 10 years on and you're getting into your 30s, you've got a mortgage, you may, you may have, you know, get married, you may have kids, as you know, in my case, and then it's, it's much, much more difficult to make those decisions to follow different paths in your life when you have certain responsibilities that you need to fulfill. So absolutely, if anybody's listening to this that you know has the ability to at least give it a go and follow a passion and follow your gut, as you say, uh, then I'd, I'd take it, certainly take a chance before you get into this sort of rhythm of life that's very difficult to break because you have responsibilities. So I didn't, didn't think the podcast was going to go down this route uh, today. So that's the... It's anyway, Roger Moore's fault, you know? It is all Roger Moore's fault. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Blame 007. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree uh, with you both, but, you know, I took that decision... Sometimes I think to myself, you know, would you make the same decision today? And the difference is I've got a family and, and, you know, two children. And I think if it's just me, I make the same call. But if it's me and a family, I think that's, 
I don't know. I don't know if I make the same call. No, it's, it's much um, you know, more much yeah. more difficult because you've got more things to think about, haven't you? You've got much more to lose that yeah. way. You've got more responsibility, and yeah, it's 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 more difficult. And and if we're talking about the you know practical side, okay, maybe as you said, maybe someone might listen to this and wonder about their own career and things. What I think is really interesting <coughs> in in photography. And, and, this, and perhaps even more open than ever before with, you know, actually what the pandemic took us through in terms of people reassessing their work-life balance and, and the flexibility within that is I think there's really a big space for like being a semi-pro, for kind of having that passion and actually being very good and being able to have a professional element that you kind of carry with you part of the year and you're doing certain things in a professional fashion whilst retaining the security of whatever other career you you have alongside that and sort of and i think if i was to advise people i'd say if you're in that position that's really the best of both worlds and then sort of you can really make the decision to sort of take off all the shackles only if you you kind of understand what it is to be a professional photographer or, or enough and if you have built it up enough to know that, okay, well, I can, I can move from this moving train to another moving train. Yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, the thing is, you know, I get, I get asked this uh, quite a lot by people. It's like, well, how do you make a living from, well, in particular, wildlife photography? And the answer to that is it's bloody difficult, <laughs> you know, particularly, particularly now with the advancements in technology and, and, and the the ability for more people to take great pictures, uh, yeah, you know, with with the equipment that we have, and I have to say, the general lack of uh, the the material that's consumed. If you're a magazine editor, and this is not having a go at those people, but they've had their budgets slashed quite dramatically over the last ten or twenty years. So I always call it the that'll do attitude, whereas you might have to, a picture that somebody wants 200 pounds for, for a cover. And then you've got another picture, which isn't as good, but it's it'll do. And you pay 10 pounds for it. The magazine editor is going to choose that 10 pound image. Yeah. And that's that's the problem that, you know, years ago, there were only a few people, too. Right, Rob? I mean, yeah. and, you know, they dealt in print and the like. And I think, like, as you say, there's so many more people in this business and the advent of AI is already making impacts in photography. I, I think outside of, at least from my standpoint, the folks that I see that are doing well full-time, it's mostly in an educational setting, workshops, bringing people along, having the, you know, teaching them about uh, photography, how to use their camera, and also the experience too. You know, If you're doing a workshop in Alaska, Africa, or some of these places that are also beautiful, it's there's a tourism aspect to it as well. I think there's probably a continued space for that market, but it's going to be difficult in some of the other markets, whether it's print or some of the things that traditionally got people by. Yeah. And, and I think you have to have a niche, don't you, in, in the market as well. You yeah. have to carve out your edge. And I guess, you know, with underwater photography, that's your niche, Henley, you know, and that's, you know, because diving came first for you quite clearly mm. because it's a real skill, yeah. you know, this, that, well, that diving is a is a is a real skill. I must. I mean, it must have taken you years to to get really proficient, you know, and and comfortable underwater to the point where you can 
perhaps not think about you know the the elements with you know that you're in to be able to concentrate on taking good photos at the same time yeah i mean it's you know it's a weird one because i you know like i said i studied history and and then i look back on where i am now and i feel like i'm on a definitive this is what i want to do for the rest of my life if i can and i think back and i think oh i wish i'd studied marine biology or something like that but but it's true that those years as a dive instructor made being in the water a kind of a very natural thing for me they taught me how to find things underwater how to understand environments all of that so so yeah for sure all of those skills actually play a big part in you know we all only have so many brain cells and the more brain cells that can be devoted to photography as opposed to worrying about whatever diving or being out of breath things like that um is is a positive for the creation of, of images so yeah actually um being a dive pro was quite a good route into this uh and and i'm certainly i'm an underwater wildlife photographer you know i've i, I, I sort of dabble in uh, a bit of topside but i don't kid myself that my results are uh, at all on par with what I might be able to create underwater. And, um, and I think it's a, perhaps intimidating to think that you need to get that comfort in the water. But on the, on the other hand, I'm actually, I think I'm kind of lucky and, and with the other underwater photographers because I would, I would actually hate to have the pressure of going topside and creating really fresh, really powerful imagery, which could allow, enable a professional career. Because I think at least I have a natural barrier to my area and there's fewer people in it and the mm. animals the water interact differently. Like, I, I mean, I would like to, let's say to go on Africa and safari and create something new. I mean, wow, <laughs> that, that is difficult to do. That's interesting too. Actually, I, I do have a few questions uh, for you, Henley, as it relates to underwater photography. But even before that, you were talking about your experience and how you got into diving. When did you decide to pick up a camera and how did you get into wildlife or I underwater photography from diving? Um, so I, I remember my first sort of camera that I brought underwater was like really just like a compact little thing. And the only purpose of that was to sort of document the adventure. So I would... I would mostly teach prof uh, upcoming professional divers. So I had a group of interns, people who would come to, to Bali where I worked and I would have 10 to 30 of them in my charge and they were training to be dive masters. So we would have a month, two months, three months all together. And so we were like this merry band going around and I would sort of, you know, document what we were doing. But that wasn't, I wouldn't say that was really photography. That was just kind of some snapping along. So the turning point, I would say, was that I went on holiday, on a diving holiday, uh, to a place called Lembe in Indonesia, which is renowned as a great macro photography destination. And I really liked small things, just to look at them. But I went to this place, Lembe, and you find that there the difference was, and, and this was especially different back then, is that... 90, 95% of the divers who went there were serious underwater photographers as hobbyists. And so all I had my little rig like this and they had 
these huge, you know, they had cameras, which uh, like the one behind me, which is kind of a, for those listening, it's, it's like a big housing. And then you would attach strobes on it. And it was a completely different kettle of fish. And after a few days of diving with them, I was curious. And I rented one of a kind of a serious unit. Actually, it was an Olympus EM5 in a housing, which to me was like, wow, that's an incredible camera uh, with one strobe. And I, I was given a, a, a kind of a little intro on how to use it. And then we went underwater and took pictures with that. And that was really a wow moment in terms of the color and the crispness. Because one of the things also we have underwater is huge loss of color. I mean, uh, are you guys snorkelers, divers, anything like that? I, I've snorkeled. I've never, I've never been on a dive before, yeah. actually. Yeah, but, yeah. a bit okay, of snorkeling, but but never never been yeah. scuba diving. But that's okay. But you will still understand. So when you go snorkeling, you just you're looking down. Everything looks bluey green, more or less. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's because of the loss of color in water. So essentially, you've lost your red and your orange within about within five meters of the surface very easily. And so actually, even when we're on a dive, let's say at 10, 20, 30 meters, and we're looking around and we're thinking, wow, this is a really good time. Actually, we're not seeing the real color of things. And so that can be one of the powers of photography. So most, well, a lot of underwater photography requires a flash or some sort of light. And we bring back those colors. So one of the cool things about underwater photography is actually, in a sense, we, we really see these the, the underwater wildlife for what it is, rather than this kind of uh, bluey, greeny thing. And yeah, so that was really kind of, yeah. One of the, yeah. That was one of the side, wild always, Yeah, no, topside, we always think, okay, well, what do you see through the camera? You're trying to recreate what your eye is seeing, you know, where it's, it's, it's just the opposite underwater. That's, that's an interesting analogy. But I, but I love photography for this as well in all sorts of ways that it allows you sometimes to see things that you couldn't ordinarily see. It's a bit like a bit like if you take a, a really fast shutter speed um, photograph of a bird doing something. So you're freezing a moment in time, which your human eye would miss, you know, or you're, you know, you, you've got a you've got a macro subject and you are you're, you're blowing it up however many times life size you know, um, so you're seeing details that you can't see with your own eye. And, and that for me is is when photography gets really interesting. And I didn't I didn't really appreciate because I haven't really thought about it. That sort of loss of color, you know, as, as you get deeper uh, and the way you can bring that back to life through photography that hadn't crossed my mind at all. So this yeah. this is I mean, that for me is one of the things that I really love about photography, that you can you know, you can put in front of people things that you can't necessarily see with the human eye at times. And it works well with bring, bringing back the color. I mean, when I think of underwater photographs, the colors and the saturation stand out. I think it looks much richer. And maybe that has something to do with the photographer and the processing and the like. But I think using the strobes and some of the, uh, whether it's fish or whatever, um, I just think the colors are so rich and it stands out versus topside photography. That's always been something. Yeah, I mean, so, and that is all, mo like most of it will be thanks to flash. So if we're talking about how underwater photography takes place in contrast to, let's say, the type of photography which, which you two have, have mostly done, it's, it's very different in the sense of 
most of what I do, well, not a lot of what I do involves flash. And I know some, some, some top side photographers get so funny about flash and it ruining images, but that's, that really is quite a strange thing for an underwater photographer to wrap their head around because without the flashes, we're so restricted. I so think it's mainly, I think it's mainly because people don't understand it. If I'm, if I'm honest and they're, and they're quite scared of flash for some reason, I, I you know, I've never really understood why, but I think that's, that's generally why people uh, have that attitude or can have that attitude. It's because they're frightened of it. Well, we're certainly not underwater. Um, and in fact, that's considered you know, part of your, your core gear. And then the other really the challenge and the privilege of underwater photography, again, due to the subject matter that we are shooting through water, is that it robs you not only of color, but it robs you of clarity. Meaning that everything, more or less everything you shoot needs to be within maybe two meters of you mm. and so that's also what's kind of cool is you know i am my lions underwater you know sea lion shark whatever it may be i am within arm's length of them when i have an interaction and a shoot with them which i think to to consider that you know if you try to even think or do that in you know on a safari or something, you will be considered nuts and really severely putting yourself in danger. But that is the obligation of underwater photography in order to achieve it technically. And one of the great things is the, the animals underwater, for the most part, they just interact with us differently. They seem to realize just how rubbish we are at sort of basically being underwater. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, even like the most, you know, pathetic looking puffer fish is going to outswim you. And, um, and, and so they approach us. Many of us, we're able to, I'm able to get close enough to take a photo of them, which means really close. And sometimes they're even kind of a bit inquisitive in a way that, yeah, it's just so, you know, maybe unless you went to the Galapagos or places like that, it's so rare to find that on land. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of, that's what, like, the rest of it is still photography. But those key elements, color, clarity, proximity to subjects and, and behavior of underwater wildlife, that's probably the key areas where, where the, the life aquatic is different. Yeah, the behavior must be refreshing. I mean, you know, when you're on land, everything's running away from you versus coming in, you know, with a sense of curiosity. Uh, to your point of how close you need to be, what's the most common focal length you use when you're photographing wildlife underwater? So, so kind of historically, an underwater photographer's kit bag would need two key lenses. And one is a fisheye, which would almost never be used on topside because of its ability to focus close and to portray a very wide scene. And we don't usually have to worry about... Um, uh what's it called about sort of the about you know kind of we can't see the earth's curve in our photos so we don't have to worry as much about that distortion and then the second lens which so we would use that historically to do all the big stuff and then we would use a macro lens to do the smaller stuff a close focusing macro lens and historically those have been the two key lenses in an underwater photos kit bag now that's evolved a, a, a little bit with some sort of 
new innovations and things, but that, that remains essentially true. So you're thinking 15 millimeter fisheye, 60 millimeter or 105 millimeter macro. That's that's your starter kit. Okay. That's interesting because I, you know, I, you know, I kind of got the fisheye, but I also thought that there would be, uh, you know, perhaps that sort of 16 to 35 type area as well would be a would be a popular choice. Is that something that you you use a lot, or is it really the sort of fisheye which is the, you know, which is your really your go to starting point, I guess? Yeah, I mean, many people many people like a 1635 for sort of a more rectilinear wide look, but. Okay, so one of the other things with underwater photography is you don't, you're not just shooting that lens and the camera, but on its own. You've got to have a window to what you're photographing. And so, you know, these are called dome ports. And so macro lenses, it's fine. They just sit behind a flat dome port. But the wide angle lenses, the fish eyes, the 1635, they go behind a sort of like a huge curved porthole. And one of the other big things which underwater photographers are really bothered about is that when you put these lenses behind these uh, kind of porthole windows, dome ports, funny things can start to happen to your image corners. And if you haven't got the right size dome port or the right extension of that dome port to the lens, basically your corners can very quickly turn to mush. And so there's, say, with a 16 to 35 underwater, there's a, like, you, if you talk to underwater photographers, they're, like, really into their corners, and they're really trying to hit, you know, F11, F13, F16 with their wide-angle lenses, because otherwise the corner detail is just unusable. Mm -hmm. And so one of the most interesting areas of innovation in underwater photography, which is, is around essentially glass which is built to be used underwater built to be used underwater and that can then yield a different behavior of the apertures allowing you to use more light from the camera so maybe rather than shooting at f13 you can now be at f8 but you're still comfortable with the image quality and this actually goes right the way back because if we really say uh talk about you know like uh like kind of the, let's say, the heyday of David Dubillet, uh sort of, and just a few professional underwater photographers in the world using film cameras. They were using often the Nikonos range, which was a range built by Nikon of cameras which were ready to go underwater and lenses to go with it. So those were actually, you just picked up the camera, stuck on your lens, and you were ready to go. You didn't need a housing. And at some point, that became... Uh, uneconomical for Nikon to to pursue but that glass which they made back then is still some of the best glass that you can use so I have a vintage Nikonos fisheye lens which is incredible and which would also be used by you know uh, BBC natural history unit productions and things like that um, so th those are kind of some of the like technical um, yeah. worries of underwater photographers and I would yeah. imagine edges are important because there's not a lot of cropping as well. I mean, you're so close to your subject. I mean, when we photograph birds, there's always a bit of cropping. You want to level the sky or you want to come in maybe 10, 20% or whatever. But I would imagine a lot of photography underwater, there's not a lot of cropping, right? I mean, you, you're almost full frame with a lot of your output, I suspect. 
Yeah, I think there's a, there's really you know so the, the kind of the the most popular diving destinations are tropical coral reefs. And the point of a tropical coral reef is it's a rainforest of the sea. It's all these colors, huge diversity of life, lots of density of it in a small area. And so a lot of the photographs which we would almost immediately associate with this is the underwater world would be a coral reef. And it's just, yeah, coral, fish everywhere. Yeah, it's a very busy scene. And that's, yeah, in, in, in those kind of classic cases, for sure, you know, you're, you're worried about, oh, no, this this kind of coral in the corner is looking a bit funny. And Henley, I do have another question as it relates to exposure underwater. So using strobes, do you often use flashes and main light, you know, meaning you're set up um, to just take advantage of the artificial light in your exposures? Or are you blending the ambient in, whether, you know, first like a blur effect? I mean, what's what, what are the most common approaches to getting images underwater in terms of exposure? I think um, they're sort of, so most underwater photographers would, would be macro and wide angle, or they would devote themselves to one discipline within that. And for the macro photography, I think the, the controlling light using artificial light, your strobes, is really that's the kind of way and for a long time the one of the sort of the most aspired to images within macro underwater photography was just you know creature black background which yeah you're you're finding ways to remove all of the ambient light and just shape it with your stroke now doing that on wide angle subjects is both tricky and i'd say a bit underwhelming in many cases and actually so whereas underwater, I feel the challenge of macro photography is around the focus, you know, stabilizing your, I mean, it's macro photography is about focus in general, but underwater, you've got to stabilize yourself. and Because and, and there's no tripod. I hadn't, you know, that's, that's something that hadn't even crossed my mind. You know, when you start talking mm. about sort of macro work, you think, yeah, well, you know, top side is just, I mean, a lot of the stuff I do, I do handheld, but sometimes you just can't get away with it. And you have to use a tripod and, and you don't yeah. have that option underwater. So that, that hadn't even crossed my mind. So that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. I mean, some of the sort of hot macro destinations are those which have sandy bottoms. And so I think part of that is not only the availability of critters, but the ability of people to sort of stick a hand down or perhaps even lie down on the sand to photograph something. But yeah, it's, um, if you're on top of your game, yeah, you should be able to sort of get the macro creature whilst, uh, just, you know, floating <laughs> mutually buoyant. Um, and, and the water has a cushioning effect. So it does help us a little bit too, you know, sort of you, you move really gently. Um, sorry. That's my phone going, everybody. Let me just right. turn that off. <laughs> sorry. Um, should have left that downstairs. And, and to, so to go back to the wide angle part of all of this, I think the, the sort of the most successful wide angle images and, and actually the biggest challenge within them is exactly what you said. It's blending this flashlight, which we almost always have to use, and that natural light. And I think when you start to do that well, that's when you kind of feel like a degree of satisfaction as a photographer. When it sort of, 
when it just looks natural and yet you've blended those two things, I think you're on the right road. Yeah. Well, I, I think that goes for, for photography topside as well, because that's what if if I'm actually going to use flash, generally speaking, that's what I will try and do is try and make the image look as natural as possible. So you're mm. using it as as fill in flash or just to give that extra element to something. Or you might I quite often use flashes underneath things or behind things to add sort of cool. to, to make them stand out from backgrounds, for example, or just give them that little pop of color or that little directional light that they just need just to, just to focus a viewer's attention on the image, but not to the point where people go, oh, that's that's obviously he's obviously used a flash there. I, do, I think that yeah. sort of subtle use of, yeah. of flash, you know, is, is really very clever. That's that's how a, a really good photograph comes together. And I, I guess sort of when we're talking about underwater photography, that's that's a real skill. That's yeah. a real skill with all the other elements that you have to deal with. Some of those images, and I think they're the most artistic from what I see on for underwater photography, it's the equivalent of like a rear curtain sink, what we would do, you know, where you blend the ambient and you get some motion in there, you have the color. Um, I, I think it makes for great imagery. It really does. Yeah. And then you've got that little sort of frozen element at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Which you need the flash for. And, and, and to go back to your earlier point, I my personal taste and aspiration, you know, we were talking about photography as a way to allow you to see the world, but I think my, the images which are my favorite are those, a frame which is more than you could possibly see with your naked eye. And that's why I think I'm drawn to the slow shutter work and things like that. Like, I think that's when photography can maybe more start to become an art form as created by the photographer rather than nature as art, which is when actually you've played a role in, in elevating it to something which, you know, even if you were really eagle eyed, you would never see it like that, but it is yeah. a true representation. You know, I, I, I like that. a yeah. lot. Yeah. So you're getting away from that sort of literal representation in the truest form and you're, you're introducing that artistic element in, yeah, as you yeah. say, to, and to I show think people things they can't see with their naked eye. Yeah. And that's one beauty about photography. A lot of people are discussing, you know, will photography still be relevant in the future in light of video and all, you know, all these other things that most either consumer cameras or pro cameras have right now. And a lot more people are doing, and you have TikTok and reels and everything else, and it's been video dominant. But I think the ability to create art through a photograph it's hard to replace that with video you know when i think of video it's more so on the documentation side the more literal side so when i think it, it when you turning nature into art i think it's that is going to keep photography around hopefully i, I don't think i don't think you'll ever take the power of the still image away yeah you know i really yeah. don't if you think about uh okay for example the image of the seahorse uh clasping onto the cotton bud Mm. And how if you think about the power of that image and the effect that that had, I mean, that changed government le legislation, that single image. And when you think about that, I know that's more of a literal representation and we're kind of getting away from the sort of artistic side of things. But when you're talking about the power of photography, I think if you think about that single image and everybody listening to this will be able to conjure that up in their mind, because I don't think there's a single person that hasn't seen that photograph. When you when you think how powerful that can be, I, I just think it that, that that's that's yeah. that's the incredible side of 
photography and that's why i think you know all three of us love it so much is because it's you can't you can't get that with with video necessarily that single image just imprints on your brain it's just can can have such a powerful message yeah totally agree and I, and i think you know as an aspiration for a photographer is would be to you know aim to and hope to a, at some point in our careers to create an image which could imprint on minds in that way you know and maybe you get one if you're really lucky and good you know like and and of course this is not just nature photography you know it's the it's the it's the the girl running from the from the napalm explosion in uh, in vietnam you know these things which you know you saw it once and you can never forget it whether it's for good or bad um although interesting to to bring up that you know the the picture which you've referred to of the seahorse with the um cotton bud was actually quite a contentious image in the underwater uh photography societies um because of concerns as to whether it was um authentically created or not it, it actually really you know stirred up huge debate and, and which is you know i think it's the example of of any niche you know sort of someone like i was just talking to my, my friends in shetland and i said oh do you like the series shetland which is this crime detective series and they said well yes but you know it's not it's not really geographically accurate and stuff like that so so they're so into that place and, and, and everything which goes on that for them it's hard to walk away from that whereas for everyone else which is 99.9 percent .9 of the population it's wow they, you just take in the story and the message and the things and, and i think that was probably true of the picture which you've just referred to which is for most it's just they got the message whereas for us who this is kind of like what we live and breathe we were really you know really thinking about oh could, would that really happen or you know did he did he coax it and, and things like that but does it matter i i don't know you know like it's for you have to have i suppose some sort of industry self-policing uh, to a certain extent but then like is there this you know big greater good argument like just as weird so there were pictures which appeared of uh face masks you know during the covid uh era of those with animals on the water and again it raised the same questions of sort of you know oh yeah. what what's the condition of the face mask do, do we think he brought it down or she brought it down <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah. Is, um, is this an authentic uh, shot or is it is it yeah. set up? Yeah. yeah. So there were conversations, I guess, around that image. Somebody was underwater and just. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that would be the extreme uh, version of the story. But, you know, seahorses are really seahorses, despite their beauty, they are they are actually really terrible uh, swimmers. So they grasp onto things because they're very bad at swimming. And they also, they basically have a complete lack, almost a lack of a stomach. And so they have to con almost constantly eat. And so they, they are actually quite pathetic creatures in a sense, despite their mm. beauty. And so a seahorse underwater is actually one of the easier things to push around and to make do what you want. So I suppose, and there have been examples, I'm not talking of that picture, but there have been examples, for example, you know, often a, a seahorse is a benthic creature in most cases, meaning it sits on the seabed, usually against something quite unattractive. And so you have some underwater, uh, you have some underwater pictures 
of seahorses midwater against a nice sunburst and things like that. And there are some species of seahorse which are pelagic, but for the most part, they're not. And so it's kind of, again, these kind of images raise questions as to, well, it wouldn't be that hard for a photographer to boop, pop a, pop a seahorse up, up in the water and, uh, and to, to get the better composition. Yeah. You see, this, this is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, you have knowledge of that world that the majority of people don't. So, as you say, when I look at an image like that, I wouldn't necessarily know that because I don't know their behavior. But it's similar, I guess, in, in a lot of ways, when, when Josh and I look at images of birds, the majority of people. Are, so say you've got a, a, you know, a bird that sat on a, the perfect perch with a perfect background. It's singing its head off. And most people go, oh, isn't that a wonderful picture? Well, Josh and I will know exactly how that's taken. Yeah. And it won't be without interference yeah. from the photographer. There'll, the be, a speaker, boombox underneath there'll be a speaker <laughs> blasting its song, you know, out yeah. from underneath it, agitating the hell out of the thing. You get it to sit where the photographer wants uh, and to get it animated in that way. Oh, it's yeah. fine. Okay, so you've produced this image. And we've had this discussion before when we had Georgina at Statler on the program, you know, on the, on the podcast. Um, you know, and the effect that those sorts of things can have, you know, on, on birds. You know, if you... Okay, so the argument could be that you, if you do it once and you get the picture, how much have you agit agitated the bird? How much have you affected it? Probably not a lot. But if you've got a bird that a dozen people have done that to, then that's a whole different ballgame. And, of course, the more popular photography gets, the more that's going to happen. You, in, in the underwater world, as, as you were alluding to earlier, you've got, this, you've got this barrier, haven't you, that prevents you know the, the number of people i guess that we're getting topside uh, and are having access to uh, yeah. or getting into wildlife photography and the pressure that that is starting to have on certain species certain locations you haven't necessarily got that as much on the on, you know in, in in the sort of underwater world because you have that barrier not only of of knowledge but expertise, um, the ability to, to dive. And of course, what we haven't really sort of touched on yet is, is the cost of it all. I mean, when you're, when you're looking at, you know, all these sort of specialist domes and all that specialist glass, I mean, you're not talking, you know, 20 pounds for a, you know, little plastic housing you can just dunk under the water. You're talking much more than the camera in a lot of these circumstances, aren't you? Yeah. Um, so, that's another thing with, with, I mean, you know, in one sense, a GoPro is a capable underwater video camera, which you could just buy in a shop and you could take it down to 10 meters free diving. And, and actually, you could do some quite impressive things with it, especially in terms of filmmaking. But, you know, there's a reason why you've got a Z9, Rob, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why yeah. I'm shooting a Nikon D 850 is because when you get into it, you, you want, you want the fault point to be us, not the equipment. And, uh, you, you know, you kind of, you want to try and if you, it's all the more so with wildlife photography, where many of the moments we witness are, are unrepeatable. You know, if, if you didn't capture that frame because of a failing of the camera or because of sort of, it's not at the, you know, maybe it's even not at the resolution that you want. I don't know. Uh, you'd be frustrated. So yes, undoubtedly, as if you get into it, you're going to want the gear, and the gear is expensive, and it's uh, at least 
doubly well i mean in a sense it's doubly expensive to topside photography because every element has to be housed so and there's different housings on the market sure but roughly speaking you know you buy the camera and you've got to spend the same again if not more on the housing then you have to have whatever port goes with the lens and all of this um so yeah i mean let's say let's say sort of to you know you're looking probably five to ten thousand pounds if you're buying new to get into this with a pretty serious rig because you also need the strobes um, and and all the accessories to go with it so so yeah it's not cheap um by any means and and i think you know that's that's reflected in in most of the hobbyists that i encounter you know it's you know a, a lot of the the people that I say I might lead on trips, they have a certain disposable income, which usually means that they are sort of at a certain point in their career to be able to afford the gear, the holidays to take you to the destination. So, yeah, there's, you know, there, there are quite a few barriers to, to underwater photography. Um, but one of the ones which I would like to dispel a little bit as we're talking is that you need to be a scuba diver because you absolutely do not. You know, you can achieve really great things just snorkeling, free diving. But, you know, there's a lot to be done. And actually, photography has brought me closer to the surface than ever in my dive career before. I, if I can, I will snorkel. And, and I'm, you know, I, I won't be too proud to admit that. Like, I mean, snorkeling brings you more light. It brings you more interesting elements. You know, you can see the surface. You could do maybe a split level image. And it brings you more time because you don't have the same physiological constraints in terms of absorbing nitrogen, which at some point basically tries to kill you if you're diving or just getting cold, because that is also the real thing underwater is our time is ticking away so fast, you know, whereas I could maybe snorkel for three, four hours. Maybe I can dive for an hour, hour and a half. I don't know. I was, I was uh, going to so ask you about that, actually, is is. If you are scuba diving, I mean, I guess it will generally depend on on where you are and the temperature of the water to a degree. But obviously, all those other uh, issues that you mentioned as well. I mean, generally speaking, with with so you've got tanks on your back. How long have you got for a dive? Is that about an hour, as you were as you were alluding to? I mean. Okay, let, let's let's say as far as kind of just your fairly typical recreational dive with an 11 liter tank of air on your back. If you're going to 20 meters and then getting a bit shallower, then yeah, you've probably got an hour to an hour and a half if you're good. And so that is also, I think, quite different to what you might feel, you know, that in terms of, say, staking out wildlife. You know, I can't I can't stay there very long. And so mm. there's it's difficult to sort of just, you know, I can't just wait a couple of days. You look at, say, the work of like uh, Vincent Meunier, uh, the French wildlife photographer oh, yeah. who made this documentary about the um, the the panther in um, I think it's sort of the Himalayas somewhere around there. Anyway, he's you know, he's it's beautiful and he's a phenomenal photographer. But he has such a sense of time and oneness that he kind of can create with his environment, with his subjects. <clears throat> I, I'm in awe of 
but is more or less impossible underwater because you just you just don't have the time to sit there and be like okay i mean you do for a few minutes but not not for hours or for days to that point henley when you're on a shoot do you before you um actually before you shoot do you do scouting dives where you'll go down without a camera just to get a feel of what's there what the activity's like and then when you grab your camera can you go in subsequent to that and at least have some sort of knowledge of what you can expect because you're dealing with such a tight time frame right is that a process yeah, you go that's, through that's or is it, uh, reactive no josh i'm basically i feel naked without a camera in my hand so i would it's like what one thing which happened since i started uh getting serious about underwater photography is like i just can't dive without a camera it's just you know who knows what's going to happen and I might miss it. And I suppose it's, it's for the, it's for the wildlife and the unpredictability. And it's, it's again, it's for the time because you know, that dive could have been a photo dive. So yeah, it's, it can't be because you can't just like do one after the other, after the other, you have to sort of break it up and all of this. So yeah. Yeah. I think we're all a bit the same though, aren't we? I mean, I find it very, very difficult to go out and say scout locations. If I, because yeah, I quite like woodland photography and I quite, quite like the sort of uh, intimate landscapes because it's really quite tough to do well. But I find it really difficult to go out and scout locations without actually taking my camera with me. I mean, the conditions might not be right for the photography and I'm, I'd be much better off just with my phone in my pocket. You know, I take Sky out or whatever and we'll, we'll just wander around and, and identify locations to come back to later. But it's so, so difficult not to go out with a camera. So I know I get you entirely. Mm -hmm. But I suppose what I should mention is that, you know, I'm often working with specialists. And so in each location that I would go, I would, you know, not always, sometimes I just go on my own, but often I'm diving with really, really great guides, you know, sort of I'm, I'm diving or going to places with, with the kind of people and, and working with the kind of people who would be hired by you know, National Geographic on assignments as the, as the fixers, you know, by the BBC Natural History Unit, Natural History uh, Film Unit. So I'm working with them. So I suppose actually the truthful answer is they've done, they've done and are doing the scouting part for me. And I go and, uh, you know, they're bringing all that local knowledge. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're getting a lot of the local knowledge maximized. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. You just mentioned, uh, Monier, if I'm saying that correctly, and I always consider him to be, you know, the the godfather of high key images. You know what he did with snowy owls. This was twenty what, over twenty years ago, um, and it brings me to an image when I think of high key and what was so unique and distinct about that image. Frankly, because it was underwater, I saw it in Bird Photographer of the Year, maybe two years ago or last year. I can't remember the exact year. It was awarded. Mm -hmm. It was a shag or a cormorant diving down yeah. and I'm so used to seeing underwater photographs that are rich with saturation, a lot of blues. And that image stuck out um, because it was monochrome or more high key. And it was very, very unique. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you got that image and uh, what brought you to, you know, going monochrome and going high key, which I think is unique because it, most underwater photographs, they, it's the complete opposite of that. It's all about, you know, more darkness, more color, deeper blues and, um, it, it's an incredible image. I'd love to hear more about it, frankly. Yeah, if, if people haven't yeah. seen that image, I don't know whether it's on the Bird Photographer of the Year website, but go and have a look. Because I thought that year, that image was by far and away 
it, it was head and shoulders above anything else in that competition. That Amazing I saw. shot. It was incredible. Yeah, it was a really, really great shot. Well, thank you both. Got to get you on more judging panels, I think. Um... <laughs> well, I was at one stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so that's an image which I call Between Two Worlds, which is of a cormorant um, in Baja California, so in, uh, in Mexico, which it's, it's a site which has dived a lot. And actually, you can reliably see a cormorant hunting on the fish there. Uh, but it was my first visit when I took that image. And I actually did it alongside a guy called Christian Vizel who is a Mexican underwater photographer famed for his black and white work, a lot of which is high key. And actually he was really, really kind of set a new direction in underwater photography in terms of his black and white work. And I, I was a big admirer. And as I was there, I was kind of, I think through his influence, I was really thinking a lot in monochrome as I was creating imagery around that time. And I, uh, so the water was clear. So that was a good thing because it allowed me to take a step back. I've been talking about how you have to be close, but the, the cormorant in between two worlds is actually small in the frame. Um, and beneath it, you can see this large school of fish just carpeting the bottom. And essentially what the image is, is you have, it's, it's kind of three elements. You have a white background, you have, the dark predatory silhouette of the cormorant, and then you have the fish below. And I think it has a dynamism through the supposed hunting of this bird on the fish below. It shows a measure of abundance in terms of all of these fish. It shows an a, interaction between kind of a, a sort of a more an air-based animal versus water-based animals. And the, I think the sort of the really the cherry on the top is that you don't really know if the bird is in the air or underwater. And I think that's probably, when I talk yeah. to people about that image, that's, that's the first question. It's like, how did you do that? Is, how is it flying? They think it's a split level image, which is something um, that can be done underwater. It's actually all beneath the surface, um, but using a high key black and white conversion and pushing the blues because actually black and white is controlled by color if you're doing it properly you know it's those color channels that you can move up and down even if it's coming out in grayscale by moving the blue color channels right up and brightening them i could come out with that composition and so it's it's all underwater the cormorant has just started his dive and is heading down the fish haven't quite realized yet what's coming and uh yeah that that's the picture and, and i actually i remember uh, I, I, I thought I actually pictured it. It was one of those where I could see the frame as I took yeah. it, which it doesn't happen much, but it did then. And, uh, and then I sort of processed it and I could already see how, what I wanted to do with it. And then I showed it to Christian, I think a couple of days later. And, uh, Christian was just like a super charismatic Mexican guy. And, uh, he looks at it and he goes, no mames, which uh, my Spanish isn't very good, but I believe that means like, no way, <laughs> which I took as the ultimate endorsement from him. So I was like, even I was really chuffed with it. And um, yeah, and it has done well in, in numerous competitions. In fact, that was kind of, I think, one of the really important 
pictures from from earlier on in my career and it's still one which i would you know i would put it on my greatest hits album uh so yeah yeah thanks for thanks for asking about that one it, it's it's yeah. it's one of those pictures actually that that sticks in my mind there are very very few images that that do that particularly of birds but that that's one of them you know i think i, I yeah i think that for me would have been my overall winner that that year but obviously you know i'm not involved in that that competition I haven't been for a while but no for for me that was that was head and shoulders above anything else that i saw you know coming through from from those that got awarded i just thought it was a tremendous image because it's so different and that's what that's what i think judges like you know is is yeah. you know you'll know yourself from this you know if you you see something that you haven't seen before or an approach that's just slightly different you yeah that mm. that's what makes them stand out so yeah it's artistic, but it tells a story at the same time too. That's what I love about the image. You know, so much, yeah. There's so much. Normally, difference. one comes at the cost of the of the other, right? And yeah. you have both of those elements in that image. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it I mean, it's. Um, I I actually convert very few images to black and white these days. I sort of I, I really feel that I, I love the um, love it as a discipline, but I sort of I'm quite strict with myself that it has to elevate the picture if I'm going to convert it to black and white. So. So I'm quite, yeah, it doesn't, I don't often find moments where I've been doing that. Um, and, and to your point about the competitions, I think in my experience, it's quite rare and difficult for a black and white image to rise to the grand prize winner in any nature or wildlife photography competition. I think there's a kind of a, you know, I, th I think there's sort of, it just, I think mostly they they, they are very happy to award um, a powerful image in a category of that nature. But I think as a grand prize winner, I think it just, it strays just a little bit too far from kind of the realism that I think, mo in my experience, most competitions like Wildlife Photographer of the Year, Bird Photographer of the Year, Nature yeah. Photographer of the Year, are looking for in terms of their grand prize, you know, the, the one picture which is going to stand for them above all others in that year which which I, yeah, I, I, I think that's a shame i mean i can understand it. i think it's a shame though because i think it's you know there, there's a power in black and white that you don't get with color and you're you're absolutely right with what you say about when you're looking at black and white conversions that black and white conversion should add something to the image not take it away so you'll take you are actually physically taking the color away but you're adding an element an extra wow factor if you like to that image and that's what really makes a successful black and white image so i, I think i think it's a shame that that i think you're right in what you say that it's going to be very very difficult for a black and white image to scoop you know the overall price somewhere because you're yeah i mean it, you're you're taking something away from you know an actual element but i i think it's a bit of a shame because i said the power of black and white can be intense and I think that's that's yeah. what that image I, I for me. Wild art would be the obvious. Uh, it would, obvious wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, our first winner, of course, was a black and white image, and it was um, an underwater image of those uh, whale sharks from the, the Philippines, Philippines. Actually, I think from the Philippines. Yeah. 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 Simply well. because of yeah of the yeah of the shape and the form and the storytelling, all those elements we were talking about, you know, with your cormorant image, were present in that image as well. And I think that's what for us made it made it stand out at the time. Uh, you know, I remember I remember the discussion well, you know, on, on the final judging selection of that of that picture. 
um, you know, and it was just the power that, that black and white gave that image over the other things we were looking at. Um, so yeah, we're, we're bold enough to choose black and white. <laughs> In the uh, wildlife photography community, there is a, there is a strong streak of, you know, purists and, you know, when it comes to wildlife photography, you know, it, uh, you look at, uh, clothing photography, fashion photography, food photography, there's not that same, there's not a similar strand, you know, strand there when it comes to purism, but when it comes to wildlife photography, it's, it's difficult to crack that nut, especially in some of the competitions that really emphasize behavior, documenting like this dynamic moment of one animal killing the other and the like, um, that seems to take precedent over black and white and other forms of images that have a more artistic bent to them. Yeah, and it probably will continue, but it's not always. But I, I do see it more in wildlife photography than other forms of photography. Yeah, yeah, and and I think so. So if you look at the sort of let's say, you know, wildlife photographer, I think there's kind of if you look at its evolution, there's there was a moment there where I think they were kind of prizing the artistry of nature very highly, and now I think with everything that's happening in in the world and kind of the how pressing you know the environmental crisis is. I think sort of there's almost a decision by them as, as the leading competition within wildlife photography to emphasize, actually, I think they've gone from sort of more uh, art artistry to documentary, like powerful content. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that because you saw yeah, that with Bird Photographer of the Year as well, didn't you? You know, there was that shift from the artistic through to the documentary style with the with the was it Roadrunner road and, um, and, and, and the and the and the, the, wall, wall. the Mexican yeah. wall yeah, the Trump wall, <laughs> you know which one that what a couple of years ago was that was that the year that your image, with I, I think so yeah that was when was that was um oh, he was a Mexican photographer ILC yeah Alejandro um yeah Rojas yeah yeah Prieto Rojas yeah yeah yeah, yeah that that's the second first. time he's won it as well isn't it because he won with those yeah, flamingos. Second or yeah. third year, I did it. Yeah, yeah. He shoots beautiful stories. He he does. But you're right. You know, I think there has been this shift from, with some of the competitions, from the artistic to the documentary, which is really interesting to see. But I think that's a result of the sentiment, the sentiment shift that that we've had. Um, you know, mm. and the, and obviously the the you know the the wildlife and climate crisis that we're we're facing. So uh, it's it's kind of understandable, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, th this has been a really interesting discussion, which we're over an hour into. I, we, we ought to make a second part to this because there are so many things that I wanted to, to to go over and ask you about, Henley, but we just haven't got to them. Um, sure. Just to sort of wrap things up, um, would what what sort of advice would you give to people that were thinking about taking that sort of first step into underwater photography? Are there sort of two or three bits of advice that you would you would give them? Well, I think, the, I think the, the first step—it's <laughs> okay. Um, I think the first step, and and this would be my message to anyone, is is please, at least once in your life, put on a mask and just look beneath the surface of a body of water, because your your life will be changed forever, even if you don't see anything aside from the way that light plays with water. It's it's you're just going to have a whole different perspective on the world, and and I think. That's something which, which is is really missing. Even like and and actually, re, even amongst you know coastal communities, that 
that sort of who might be really engaged with the the ocean and, and huge stakeholders in it in terms of their day-to-day -day survival but they would have never bothered to actually have a look underneath and so that's the first thing now if you are interested in in underwater photography well well i would have to presume that you're spending time underwater and that you are you know interested from that and and yeah you need to be the more time you can spend in the water the more at ease you're going to be and if you've got a camera in your hand then and and you become a keen observer then you're you're going to see things i think underwater is really rewarding in that sense in terms of you're not going to have to work as hard to have a really cool wildlife encounter underwater, pretty much no matter where you are. If you just go and find like some reasonably clear water, and that can be two, three meter vis in the UK, you know, it's, you're going to see stuff. Um, and then, well, then, I mean, I guess... <laughs> It's like any other. It's like photography in general, isn't it? And especially wildlife photography. It's it's time. It's effort. It's practice. It's uh, and and see where it takes you. If you're looking to invest in equipment, then you kind of need to try and make those investments wisely. There's a big secondhand market, so you can save yourself a lot of money that way. And um, there are also today some really really good resources to um, to to get you along through mistakes which i surely made and, and made too often in my early days so so um alex mustard has a really fantastic book called underwater photography Masterclass, and i would definitely recommend get that it will be the best investment you've made in terms of just understanding the basics because there are there are a few differences which you need to understand those differences for photography to become photography again Good advice. Good advice. Henny, we're gonna we're gonna have to get you back on again because I said there's so much. Sure. I, 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 I think I only have to finish my life story. <laughs> I know, exactly. Well, I tell you what, we'll have yeah. to do we'll have to do Henley part two and, and do the second part of your life story. And, okay, uh, and, I'll just, and, and I'll just hog this podcast from now on then, shall I? Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> no, we, we should we should definitely do that. But uh yeah, I mean so we're we're well over an hour in. <laughs> so as usual, I always say, I always say to Josh, I oh, will do fifty minutes or so or whatever. And it, yeah, the time always does. flies. Yeah, it's... it does. It does. Yeah, it's, but, it's fun. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. It, it, I, I always I always love these discussions because, you know, I never research anything or very very rarely research anything for this. Uh, and I even said to you in an email because you sent me one and said, oh, well, you know, what do I need to prepare? And I said nothing. We'll just come on and we'll ju we'll just have a chat because the you know this is the basis of the of the podcast it's just off the cuff um and i don't edit them really at all either we just record a conversation and put it out there so i really hope that you know people have, have got something from that and have, have really enjoyed it this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you henley i said we will get you back again because there are so many things that i wanted to cover and we just haven't really had the, had the time to so uh, no, th thank you thank you for that and if people want to reach out to you or follow you on instagram for example what's your what's your instagram handle as it were uh yeah well well thank you the it's uh, reciprocated on my side thank you for having me it's been very enjoyable hopefully i can come back and um yeah if you'd like to have a look at my images uh instagram i'm quite easy to find henley spears or my website is henleyspears.com i'm also on facebook 
Uh, I'm pretty easy to find because I've got quite an unusual first name. Yeah. And uh, I'll leave those links anyway in the show notes so people can can find them there as well. So what what's next for you, Henley? Because I know you 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 do get about a bit, don't you? Yeah, well, I need to. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm doing all UK based until October, and at the moment, so I've been appointed as the first ever oceanographic magazine storyteller in residence, and so I'm in the middle of shooting and report and, and researching for my first story on that which is is going to be based in a few locations around Scotland including Shetland so my I will be soon heading to um, the Isle of Arran which is quite a special marine conservation success story and trying to better understand that so that's what's next some some cool dry suit diving I was going to say, you'll have your dry suit for that one. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, we're, we're, we're not talking warm tropical waters there. That is for sure. But yeah, an amazing part of the world. Um, you know, and, yeah, uh, I said, well, talk, talking about, yeah, and, and I said, talking about Shetland as we were before we came on, uh, you know, it's certainly something where, where, where I, I want to go back to and on a regular basis. And I think Josh is the same. We were blown away by that. So yeah, yeah that, sure. that'll be the, that'll be the subject of another podcast, which we'll record shortly. But uh, Henley, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an Thanks, it's been pleasure to talk to you and uh, yeah, it, it's uh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll link all your, your websites and your Instagram accounts in the, in the show notes below. So I hope everybody's enjoyed that. Um, Please, if you can and you have enjoyed the content, uh, then do give us a rating because that really helps uh, the algorithms find the podcast and, and push it out to more people. So ratings, comments, you know, any sort of feedback um, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, it's kind of a I think I heard this on another podcast. It's kind of a gentleman's agreement uh, that if you've enjoyed the content, then you'll do that sort of thing for us because, you know, it, you know, it, it, it helps us reach more people, as I said. So yeah, any sort of comment or rating, good or bad, you know, uh, put hopefully good because you've enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, just 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 leave it uh, in the comments section and all the ratings uh, for on your favorite podcast platform be greatly appreciated. Uh, said so one thanks once again, Henley. Um, great to talk to you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have you on again soon. Josh, thanks as always. And uh, we'll 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 get together soon, and we'll we'll get Rebecca Nason on, and we'll have a chat about Shetland next up. So uh, sounds yeah, good. That, sh that should be fun. Anyway, thanks to you to you both. Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll see you all again next time. You have been listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast. If you have enjoyed the content, then please help us to spread the word by sharing a link on your social media platforms, giving us a like and leaving us a comment. See you all again next time.